Good morning. Yeah, okay, listen, I know it's eight, nine, it's not, it's nine o'clock. You can do a better good morning than that at nine o'clock. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, welcome to church. My name is Gary Anderson. I serve as the pastor here at Midtown Fellowship, Granny White. It is wonderful uh, to be in God's house with you this morning, and uh, I'm really excited to be able to, uh, I'm kind of excited to share what I'm about to share with you this morning. Uh, no, I'm really excited to share what I'm going to share with you this morning. I just want to say, if uh, you're visiting with us or if this is your first time in our church, I want to extend a really special welcome to you. We know uh, that visiting a church or being new in a church can be a really hard thing, and uh, our hope and prayer is that you will find this to be a really welcoming really loving place uh, where you will encounter the living God. If you are new or visiting, I would love to, to meet you after the service. Um, I'll hang out up here for a little bit, uh, but know that we are super glad uh, that you're with us this morning. Uh, our text this morning is Matthew chapter three, and I believe Jessica Meeks is going to read that for us. Come on down, Jess. There we are. Come on, come on. Oh my goodness. So Presbyterian of you. Welcome, Jess, to the, into the church. Matthew chapter 3, it's going to be the whole thing, so that's 1 through 17. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the I'm sorry. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, "I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me?" But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jess. Uh, it, the first year uh, in my childhood that there were school-sponsored sports was seventh grade. So that was the first year that you could try out for a school team. And so I, I loved basketball growing up. Uh, just it was, the, 
era, it was the golden era of basketball. It was the tail end of Magic and Larry, and it was the sweet spot of Michael Jordan. And I just, I loved basketball. And I not only loved it, I thought I was pretty good at it. And so uh, I had played kind of rec ball with everybody else in sixth grade. And apparently there was a travel team that two kids from every rec team were invited to try out for. And I hadn't been invited to try out for that, which was a little bit weird to me. But the coach's son was on my team. And so I figured that was a pretty good explanation for why I didn't get invited to try out for that travel team. So anyway, seventh grade comes around. And seventh grade, we have a school. There's a seventh grade team at the school. And I'm like, here's my moment. You know, the scourge of nepotism is removed, okay? And now it's an even playing field, and I can show the world, or at least this little middle school, uh, what I'm made of. And so it's like two days of tryouts. Uh, end of the second day, uh, you know that fateful moment when the coach starts splitting, uh, splitting the trier outers into two groups. And it's like, you can tell, you, you know, who the, one group is the ballers, and one group is the scrubs, right? Let's just call it like it is. And I got sent to the group of the scrubs, which I was like, clearly there's been a mistake here, but there, but there hadn't been. And so the coach comes over and he gives, you know, some stuff about really hard decisions and, you know, the, you, y'all made this really hard for me. Yeah, you know, whatever. I stopped listening to him uh, because I was crushed. I was, I, it's, I, I figured it out this week. I think it's 30 years ago and I can still remember how terrible it felt to get cut from the seventh grade basketball team. Uh, didn't deter me, right? So eighth grade comes around, and I'm like, I'm, I'm still good at basketball, and so I'm going to try out again. And so I try again in eighth grade, and I got cut again in eighth grade. No, no sympathy. Seriously. <laughs> Thank you. Which is actually exactly what I felt when I got home. This is not the illustration that I want to get at this morning, but this is for another day and another time. But I got home from eighth grade tryouts, just crushed in my puddle of tears. And I come in the door and uh, I, all I'm expecting is like, you poor thing, let me you know, make you some cookies and pour you some milk. And this is what my mom said. She goes, what did you do differently this year that you expected a different outcome than last year? Mom was cold. <laughs> And she was right. It's one of the great life lessons I've ever learned. I was like, I played a lot of NBA Jam this year, okay? <laughs> Duh. But I took her advice to heart, and I worked really hard that year. And uh, ninth grade comes around, and I tried for the basketball team in ninth grade. I may have been terrible at basketball, but I was persistent. Some guys were playing up. Uh, one of them was the coach's son. Uh, some guys stopped playing basketball to focus on other sports. I had worked really hard that year, and I made the freshman basketball team. Uh, at... Thank you. This is not about me. This is not about me, but thank you. Uh, just wait till what I'm about to tell you. Like, you think that's impressive. Uh, I was the backup point guard on the ninth grade team at Hudson High School for 1996-97 season. Uh, and at the end of the season... Uh, there's a banquet for the whole basketball program at the high school. So that's not just the freshman team. It's the JV and varsity, all the cheerleaders, all their families, all the moms and dads, siblings, everything. And they give out a bunch of awards at that banquet ceremony. And they give out for, you know, for varsity and JV, it's like MVP and best offensive player, defensive player, academic, whatever, yada, yada, yada. But they only give one award for the freshman team. They're not trying to like build up like who's the best player. The only award they give for the freshman basketball team is the most improved player. And I was the most improved player on the freshman basketball team at Hudson High School. 
I, come on. It, like, bless me like you're not Presbyterians. Come on. Thank you. Thank you. 29 years ago, it is still the highlight of my academic life, which is both amazing and a little bit sad. Um, but I won that award, and so they call me down in front of all of these people, and they're clapping for me, and they're cheering for me, and afterwards, everyone is telling me what a great job I did and how proud of me they are, and you can draw a straight line from that night to the night that I was drafted into the NBA. <laughs> Just kidding. I got cut in 10th grade. That's another story for another day. But that experience, those two experiences, those three experiences, actually, those two years from basketball tryouts in seventh grade to, to, to the end of year banquet in ninth grade, those are some of the most uh, indelible memories in my mind of one of the um, most important life lessons I've ever learned. And it is this, your performance matters. Your per my performance matters. I did not perform well in seventh grade, and I felt terrible about myself. And I performed, I, let's, let's put it in perspective. I scored two points the whole season, okay? And not even on a field goal. That was two free throws. And they weren't in the same, uh, same foul. That was, I was two for four from the line in two separate games, okay? But I did well that season. I performed well. And I was told I was good because of it. And, and I, as much as I can remember how bad I felt in seventh grade, I also can still remember what it felt like to be awarded that plaque in front of the whole basketball program at Hudson High School. I slept with it under my pillow. I didn't really, but I, I, but I would have if, if I had been allowed to. Uh, and that lesson that how I perform affects how I feel about myself has just been ingrained in every season of my life, in every place that I have gone since those days. The rest of high school, college, girls in college, college admissions, uh, the workplace, seminary, being a pastor. I mean, we could just go on and on and on about all of the places and seasons and circles that I have run in in my life where this idea that how you perform actually matters for how you feel about yourself. It just has been ingrained over and over and over again to the point that what I have come to believe is that how I perform actually determines who I am. If I perform good, I know that's not good English, but bear with me, then I am good and I look good and I feel good about myself. But if I perform bad, then I am bad and I feel bad and I look bad and people tell me that I am bad, I have come to believe that there is an undeniable link between how I perform and not how I feel about myself. That's just, a, that's just a byproduct of it. There's a link between how I perform and who I actually am. And here is what I am willing to, to bet this morning. I am not the only one in this room who, who feels that way. Uh, I think... I think um, I've reflected a lot in the last number of weeks on, on the fact that God brought me here to Midtown Fellowship Granny White. Been, been here about 15 months now, and I've been thinking a lot about what he's doing and, and why he brought me here. And I think a big part of it is because I am a lot like you all, and you all are a lot like me. So as I stand up here in front of you this morning, you can be like, that's me. Not all, you know, actually, not really. I don't want to like, make you feel that bad about yourself. But, but we have a lot in common. 
And so I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch for me to assume that there are a few of us in this room this morning, there are more than a few of us in this room this morning, who have a, a really hard time separating our performance from who we are. It is, the, it is the air that we breathe, it is the water that we drink, it is the culture and the society that we live in, it is a meritocracy. You are rewarded theoretically if you do good, you are punished theoretically if you do bad. And that has caused so many of us, maybe even all of us, to live into a life where we almost cannot help but tie who we are to how we perform, to what we do, to what we produce, to how other people see us, to what they say about us. It is really hard for us to separate our performance from our identity. And so what we do because of that is we create, and this is gonna like, just bear with me for two seconds, I'm coming to your living room. Uh, We create an alter identity. Uh, Brennan Manning in his amazing book, Abba's Child, calls it the imposter. We all create an imposter self which we present to the world. And that imposter's whole goal is to look good and to be good and to do good because if we look good and we can be good and we can do good, then that must mean that we are our good. But all of us knows when we look in the mirror in those quiet moments when we are alone with ourselves, there's a lot about us that is not good. There's a lot about us that we don't want other people to see or know or hear or experience because if they did, if they saw that side of me, they would cut me from the basketball team. If they saw that side of me, then they would tell me, then they would know that I am not good. And so we create this imposter self that we present to the world. And I just think here in, in our uh, community here in the Green Hills, Nashville, like there may, maybe LA, there's more of, like that we could probably compete with them for the town that is about performance, right? And so there is just a, there is just a vibe in this place. And, I'm, and whether it's, you know, that's, that's kind of the music and performance industry, but that flows down into all the things that we do here in Nashville. And all the, all the things that we are living into here in the Green Hills, 12 South, just heartbeat of the affluence and success and look-goodedness of Nashville. And we're all living in that and breathing in that and drinking in that. And so what we do is we, we slap the ski hill and the climbing wall and the beautiful structure on top of and hide from the world what is really going on inside of us. Because if we look bad, then we are bad. But if we look good, then we are good. And, and though like, it may not seem like it on the surface, I think that is exactly what our text today is speaking to. And so I, I just want to, in, in, uh, in the few moments that we have left together, I want to talk a little bit about what I think Matthew 3 is saying to you and me about who we are and what this is all about. Uh, we're in our spring, well, I know it's still winter. We are in our late winter and spring series here at Midtown Fellowship, Granny White, uh, in the book of Matthew. We are calling it something greater because the theme that Matthew just, just comes back to over and over and over again, the note that he just plays over and over and over again is that uh, something greater is here. And that something greater is Jesus, but, but his kingdom, which he has brought with him, is also something greater. And there are all kinds of ancillary things that come along with Jesus and his kingdom that are greater than the kingdom that we are living in right now. And, and what I want us to sit in today, uh, the title of this sermon, the theme of this sermon is that you are the beloved and there is something greater than your performance. 
You are the beloved. That's the title. Or the title's the beloved. The, the whole thing is in the title. And there is something greater than your performance. As we come to Matthew chapter 3, we, uh, there's just really kind of two parts to this. Uh, we have one section about John the Baptist, and then we have one section where John and Jesus' stories intersect. And so I just want to use those two kind of main uh, stories, lines of thinking in Matthew chapter 3 to draw out two ideas from this text. So just two points today. You are going to be very confused when I get to the second one. Um, We'll get there in a minute. Uh, The first one is this. The first thing I want us to see uh, in Matthew chapter 3, particularly as we are looking at the story of John John the Baptist, is this. It's not about you. It's not about you. So as we come uh, to to this text, uh, the last thing we had in Matthew chapter 2 was the birth of Jesus, okay? And then we skip ahead about 30 years. And in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew opens up by beginning to tell us about this guy named John the Baptist. Now, uh, we know from Luke's gospel that he and Jesus were related, that they were about the same age, that he had been conceived uh, and born into a very special, with the power of the Holy Spirit, like something was going on in this guy's life. And as we come to this point uh, in the gospel of Matthew, what we know about John the Baptizer or John the Baptist is that he is out in the wilderness of Judea uh, near the Jordan River. So he is out away from the city of Jerusalem, and many, many people are going out to him to be baptized in the wilderness in the Jordan. We are told that he has a coat of camel's hair, a leather belt, and he eats locusts and wild honey. Uh, This is a cool dude, and I would would look forward to someday uh, talking to him about what the deal was with the locusts, but... um, One of the things that we need to understand as we come to Matthew chapter 3 is that in the Old Testament, uh, as the predictions, the prophecies, the expectations of a coming Messiah were being built up, one of the things that went along with that is that there came to be an expectation that there was going to be a forerunner or a pre-runner to the Messiah, someone who was going to come ahead of him and prepare the people for him. It's why Matthew in verse uh, 3 quotes Isaiah 40 saying this is one of the prophecies that John the Baptist was to fulfill because there was an expectation that there was going to be someone who was going to prepare the people for the Messiah. Some people actually believed it was going to be Elijah himself, the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament, that he was actually going to come back and prepare the people for God's Messiah. Not probably uh, an accident that Elijah wore a coat of camel's hair and a leather belt and spent a lot of time in the wilderness. And so what Matthew is making clear is that John the Baptist is this messianic forerunner. He is the one that has been prophesied to come and who was going to prepare the people for the Messiah. Now, here's what I want us to know about John the Baptist. It it, it, kind of comes out in the text, um, but it would be a little bit easy to miss particularly because Matthew doesn't devote a lot of time to John the Baptist, he was kind of a big deal. So he, was, he, he had a pretty significant impact on the culture in the time that he was living. Uh, Josephus is a guy that New Testament scholars either love or love to hate, but Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived at the time of Jesus. And he is the, probably the best source we have for extra-biblical historical information about the time uh, and place of Jesus and Israel in the time uh, that we are reading about here. And Josephus actually talks about John the Baptist because he was kind of a big deal. So when Matthew says in verse uh, 5 
Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him? Does that literally mean that everyone in the whole country was going to John the Baptist? No, that's a literary device that we call hyperbole, but he's making a point. There were a lot of people going out to John to see what he was doing and to hear what he had to say. And in fact, Josephus tells us that's partly why John lost his life, because Herod was worried about this following that John was developing out in the wilderness. So what we need to remember, what we need to understand as we come to this is that John was just not kind of a little secondary bit player, you know, that a few people went out. There were a lot of people going out to see what John was doing and to hear what he was doing and to... to, to listen to what he was saying, and many of them to be baptized by John. And so here's the deal. Why was John doing that? Why why was John able to gather a following? Why was John given a vision and a mission? Why um, Why was he able to draw all these people to himself? Was it so that John could build a, a, a little kingdom for himself? Absolutely not. What does he say in verse two? Repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He doesn't say my kingdom is at hand. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And just a little spoiler alert, when we get to chapter four, verse 17, that is the exact same thing that Jesus is gonna say as he starts his public ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was not pointing to his own kingdom. He was pointing to a greater kingdom. Was it so that John um, could draw a bunch of people to himself because of his charisma, gather a following, um, start a movement? No, what does he say in verse 11? I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Uh, It's generally understood that even, uh, even for those who were slaves, Uh, only the lowest of the low slave was expected to take someone's shoes off, carry them, wash their feet, so on and so forth. And John is saying, there's someone coming after me who I'm not even worthy to do what the lowest of the low would do for. I'm so far below him. Uh, It wasn't about John. This whole deal wasn't about John. John wasn't there to build his own kingdom. John wasn't there to show his gifts, his preaching, uh, his vision, all, all of that stuff. John was there to point to something greater than himself. That was what his job was. That was what his calling was. It wasn't about John. It was about pointing to something greater than himself. Uh, do, we, do we still go to the mall? Anybody? I used to love to go to the mall. That was kind of my generation, right? Uh, I have not, don't go to the mall much these days. Uh, we've been here, I think, 15 months. I've been to the Green Hills Mall one time. It was with Randy, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, whatever. You read into that, whatever you need to read into that. Um, but uh, I know that they still exist, and I know that uh, obviously people still go there because they're still in business. If we were to go to the mall, if you were to go to the mall this afternoon, uh, as we walked around the mall, in and out of the department stores particularly, uh, we would see some things there that I assume they're still there. Again, I haven't been in a long time, but they used to be there. Uh, And we used to call them mannequins. I think maybe we still do. Uh, Mannequins are faceless, um, I don't know, how how do you describe it? Like Like a person that's not alive, but it's in the shape of a person. And, and they put clothes onto mannequins in order to show you how beautiful they are, in order to entice you to buy the clothes, right? 
And so what nobody does, at least we hope nobody does, because if they did, it would totally defeat the purpose of what's happening uh, when you look at a mannequin. Nobody walks around the mall and is like, that is a beautiful mannequin. Man, I would like to hang out. I, I, I am drawn to that mannequin. I wonder if this store will sell me that mannequin, right? Nobody does that. It's, that's ridiculous. What do people do? They say, those clothes are beautiful. I'm, I'm attracted to those clothes. I am drawn to those clothes. I, I would like to buy those clothes from this store. The mannequin itself is not beautiful. There is something higher and above the mannequin that clothes it with something that makes it beautiful, that makes it attractive. And, and John the Baptist, for all intents and purposes, he was simply a mannequin. I don't mean to discount his ministry, like, like to cheapen it that much, but he simply existed to point to someone higher, something greater than himself. His job was not to draw people to himself and make them think, what a, man, this is a good looking dude and uh, he's, there's something beautiful about this man and I'm drawn to him. No, his job was simply to say, there is someone coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie because he is so much greater than me. He is the one you are looking for. And we got a whole bunch of people in this sanctuary this morning who are just like John the Baptist. Uh, not in like the, you know, camel hair, you know, man of the woods type vibe. I mean, God has given you gifts. God has given you abilities. There are people in this sanctuary who are incredibly skilled at building businesses. There are people in this sanctuary who are incredibly gifted at creating, creating art, creating whatever else. There are people who have God has gifted to heal, heal other people and to help other people. And God has not given us those gifts and abilities so that we might draw people to ourselves. It's not about us. God has not given you the things that he has given you so that you might build your own little kingdom and show the world how beautiful you are. The, the, your role is not, to, is not to entice people to see how lovely and attractive and how beautiful you are. It is to show people that there is something more lovely and more attractive and more beautiful. Listen, I, gotta, I, should say, I'm gonna, I just want to say this really carefully because it's going to sound like I'm being arrogant, I think, and I'm not. If there's anything in me that any of you are ever like, oh, that's kind of charismatic, or that's kind of attractive, or like, whatever, that has nothing to do with me. That is only because God has given me something out of his kindness and his grace that in some small way reflects who he is. And the same is true for all of us. If there's anything in you that is beautiful, that is attractive, that is, is able to, to do things successfully, if there's anything in you that is able to perform well, it is because God has allowed you to do that. And it is not so that you can draw people unto yourself. It is so that you can point people unto the one who has given you the good gifts which they are attracted to. So that's the first thing I just want to say. As we just think about big picture John the Baptist, what was he about? It was not about him. And may we remember that whatever our lot in life, it is not about us either. We are here simply to point to something greater than ourselves. And here's the second thing that I want us to see uh, in this passage this morning. This is where you're going to get a little confused. So first thing, it's not about you. Second thing, it's all about you. <laughs> Come on. What, what good pastor cannot speak out of both sides of their mouth in the same sermon? I had a career in sales before this, so I'm like, Psh. Um, so, so the next thing I just want to look at uh, 
is the story of, of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. So here's John out in the wilderness. He has all these people coming to him. He's baptizing them into repentance. Listen, I know like for the theologically inquisitive this morning, there's all kinds of questions around like, what is this baptism and how does it work and why is it happening? And we're gonna have to talk about that another time because that is not the main point that I want us to focus on today. But, but Jesus comes to John. And so listen, when I say John was kind of a big deal, the, the text tells us that Jesus came from Galilee, which is 70 miles away. And he didn't have a Tesla to hop in and hit the you know, Jerusalem Highway 1 down to the Jordan. Uh, he came from a long way to come to John. And he comes to John, and as he comes to John, John is like, we don't know how he knows, but John is like, this is the guy I've been talking about. This is the something greater that I have been telling you about. And Jesus is like, I need to be baptized by you. And John is like, You're not, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to do that because I should be baptized by you, Jesus, not you should be baptized by me. And Jesus uh, protests and says, no, actually, this is the way we're going to do it. And when Jesus tells you this is the way you're going to do something, a really good life lesson is you say, okay, we'll do it that way. And so that's what John the Baptist does. And he baptizes Jesus, and we're told uh, all of the Gospels relate some version of this story, that after Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the water, um, let me just read it. Verse 17 says that behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The heavens opened up, the spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove and a voice came from heaven that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The new English translation of the Bible says, uh, this is my my son whom I love. Uh, I take great delight in him. I take great delight in him. And here is what I just want us to recognize as we come to this text, because uh, especially for those of us who've been around church for a long time, we know the story of Jesus. We know kind of all the things that he did, all the like savior of the world, died on the cross, rose to new life and the power of God's spirit. When God pronounces this blessing on Jesus at his baptism, uh, what has he done up to this point? Nothing. The world doesn't even know who he is at this time. He has not uh, healed a single person of blindness. He has not cleansed a single leper. He has not preached a single sermon. He has not gathered any disciples to himself. He has not gathered any followers to himself. He hasn't turned water into wine. He hasn't raised anyone from the dead. He hasn't died on a cross, buried in a tomb for three days, raised to new life in the power of the Holy Spirit, defeated sin and death forever, restored to us the relationship with God the Father that was always intended. He hasn't done any of that. And yet God says of him, his son, he says, this is my beloved son. I take great delight in him. He hasn't performed at all. And yet God the Father says, this is the, I I am so proud of this one. He is the apple of my eye. I take great delight in him. And if you get nothing else out of this message this morning, in fact, I would venture to say, if you get nothing else out of the entire series in the book of Matthew that we are going to preach over the next several months, this is what I hope that you get out of it. God says of you, the exact same thing that he says of his son, Jesus. You are God's beloved son. You are God's beloved daughter. He takes great delight in you. And what is, 
what is really hard about this message that I have to preach this morning is that sometimes, and it feels like they're coming more frequently these days, I have to preach about things that I don't even believe myself. I have no context or category for that being actually true in my life. All I have ever known is I am my performance. I am what I do. And if I perform good, I am good. And if I perform bad, I am bad. And yet the un, literally um, unbelievable truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God sees me as I am. He does not see my imposter self. He sees the true self. He sees the true Gary. And he looks at the true Gary in all my mess and garbage and crap. Sorry. And he says, this is my beloved son. I take great delight in him. And if you all just knew how I have treated my wife this week, if you knew how I have treated my kids this week, if you knew how angry I can be and how petty I can be and how competitive I can be, if you knew how insecure I was, how I've treated my coworkers, how, how and this is not just me, it's all of us, how we have an, in, an unbelievable capacity to hurt most the people we love the most. If you all could see that, you would just be like, like I don't want to touch that with a hundred foot pole. And the God of creation looks at me in, in my mess and he says, this is my beloved son. I take great delight in him. And that is, it, forgive me if this feels a little too autobiographical. Let me take it off of myself for a moment. The same is true for you. Someone needs to hear this morning, and it's me, but it's also someone else, that God is singing over you this morning. You are his beloved child, and he takes great delight in you in the midst of whatever you are sitting in this morning, in the midst of whatever your pain is this morning, whatever your frustration is this morning, whatever your disappointment, whatever your fear, whatever your doubt, whatever your whatever is this morning. You are God's beloved child. And if we could just in some small way actually believe that that were true, it would change everything. It is not about your performance. It is about his performance on your behalf. You are his beloved son. You are his beloved daughter. He takes great delight in you. I was at uh, our small group this week on Tuesday night, and my, my, my small group doesn't necessarily know this, but oftentimes that's kind of a focus group for me as it relates to sermon preparation. <laughs> and um, we were, obviously we were talking about this passage, and I was sitting in this chair right next to the bookshelf, and I was looking through the books on the bookshelf. I was also paying attention. <laughs> and I saw a book uh, on the bookshelf called The Life of the Beloved by Henry Nouwen. It's just a small little book, and it was so small that I was like, I could get that in my pocket and steal it, and they wouldn't even know. And so I did. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I asked. Uh, but I took it, and I read it this week, and I read it at my daughter's volleyball practice, and I was had to, <laughs> trying not to let the other parents see me crying at my daughter's volleyball practice. Uh, 
Henry Nouwen uh, was a Catholic priest. He was an author. He was a theologian. He taught at Notre Dame, Harvard, and Yale. And he spent the last 10 years of his life living in a residential community for people who were severely mentally handicapped, uh, ministering to them and pastoring them in that community. Uh, and he wrote this book called The Life of the Beloved. And I just want to read uh, a, little, a little story that he gives in here, uh, and then we'll wrap it up as it relates to what we're talking about right now. This is what he says. He says, not long ago in my own community, I had a very personal experience of the power of a real blessing. Shortly before I started a prayer service in one of our houses, Janet, a handicapped member of our community, said to me, Henry, can you give me a blessing? I responded in a somewhat automatic way by tracing my, with my thumb the sign of the cross on her forehead. Instead of being grateful, however, she protested vehemently, no, that doesn't work. I want a real blessing. Suddenly, I became aware of the ritualistic quality of my response to her request and said, oh, I am sorry. Let me give you a real blessing when we are all together for the prayer service. She nodded with a smile, and I realized that something special was required of me. After the service, when about 30 people were sitting in a circle on the floor, I said, Janet has asked me for a special blessing. She feels that she needs that now. As I was saying this, I didn't know what Janet really wanted, but Janet didn't leave me in doubt for very long. As soon as I had said, Janet has asked me for a special blessing, she stood up and walked toward me. I was wearing a long white robe with ample sleeves covering my hands as well as my arms. Spontaneously, Janet put her arms around me and put her head against my chest. Without thinking, I covered her with my sleeves so that she almost vanished in the folds of my robe. As we held each other, I said, Janet, I want you to know that you are God's beloved daughter. You are precious in God's eyes. Your beautiful smile, your kindness to the people in your house, and all the good things you do show us what a beautiful human being you are. I know you feel a little low these days and that there is some sadness in your heart, but I want you to remember who you are, a very special person, deeply loved by God and all the people who are here with you. As I said these words, Janet raised her head and looked at me, and her broad smile showed that she had really heard and received the blessing. When she returned to her place, Jane, another handicapped woman, raised her hand and said, I want a blessing too. <laughs> she stood up and before I knew it, had put her face against my chest. After I had spoken words of blessing to her, many more of the handicapped people followed, expressing the same desire to be blessed. The most touching moment, however, came when one of the assistants, a 24-year-old student, raised his hand and said, what about me? Sure, I said, Come. He came, and as we stood before each other, I put my arms around him and said, John, it is so good that you are here. You are God's beloved son. Your presence is a joy for all of us. When things are hard and life is burdensome, always remember that you are loved with an everlasting love. As I spoke these words, he looked at me with tears in his eyes, and then he said, thank you, thank you very much. One day, for those of us who are in Christ, I, I genuinely believe uh, you will put your head against God's chest and he will put his arms around you and you will hear in that moment the words that you have longed to hear. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. I take great delight in you. And one of the great challenges of the Christian life is that we are called to live into that between now and then because it won't be any more true then than it is right now. So this is just what I want to leave you with. It's not the benediction. 
you are God's beloved daughter. You are God's beloved son. You are precious in God's eyes. Your beautiful smile, your kindness to the people in your house and all the good things you do show us what a beautiful human being you are. I know you feel a little low these days and that there is some sadness in your heart, but I want you to remember who you are, a very special person, deeply loved by God and all the people who are here with you. Let's pray. God, it seems like it is too good to be true. And yet, if it were true, it would be the most transformative truth in all of creation. That you call us your beloved children, just the way we are. And God, I pray that somehow in the power of your spirit, you would allow us as individuals and you would allow us as a community to lay down our attempts to perform to get your love and simply receive the love that you have already given to us. I don't even know what that looks like or how to do it. We need you to do it for us. But everything in me, and I pray that everything in us right now wants to cry out thank you, even though we don't totally grasp what it means, that you have called us your beloved. And may we somehow believe that it's true. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.